0: All you beautiful people, and welcome to the Glorious in the Mundane podcast. I'm your host, Christy Knuckles. For those following along in real time, happy back to school to you, at least for those of you who live in the Bible Belt or the South. School just starts very early in August, at least for most public schools. Our youngest Annie will be a junior this year and she actually goes to a private school and they start in late August, which I actually love. In fact, we're those people who go school supply shopping after everyone starts school, which usually means that the school supply section looks like an actual tornado blew through it. <laughs> but at least we're not among the crowds when the tornado blows through. Annie's school also has a tradition where the first few days of school are enjoyed at an away camp together. That's right. Her first few official days of school are at camp. Like, How cool is that? They actually have no phones allowed, and the entire week of camp is both planned by the senior class and run by the senior class. So next year, she'll actually have her turn at getting to plan and lead camp, which is so cool to think about. But this year, I'm going to enjoy one more year of her not being a senior. I'm going to enjoy the fact that she's just 16, but hasn't wanted to get her license yet. Trust me, we've actually done a lot of motivating around here, but she just looks at us and is like, I'm not ready. And we're like, okay. (laughs) And I know I need to honor that. And enjoy the fact that we will still get to drive her to school and pick her up, at least for one more semester. Well, today, this is our last episode in the summer in the Psalm series, but I hope it still just meets you and encourages you in the best way today. As we lean in one more time to this beautiful book in Scripture, we're going to be in Psalm 118 together. And I know our rhythm has been that we usually take these Psalms section by section, but today we're not actually going to go sort of phrase by phrase as much, but rather just talk about the significance of this particular psalm and specifically what it would have meant to Jesus and what it means for us today. Part of the reason for that is that it's kind of a longer psalm for us to go phrase by phrase through, but mostly because the significance of this psalm is part of what is called the Hallel. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more later. It is so beautifully engaging, and I hope it leaves a mark on you like it has on me. I'm going to read over us now. As I do, Holy Spirit, we pray that you will come and illuminate these precious words for us. We ask again today, would you show us the ancient path, the good way, and help us walk in it today faithfully? In Jesus' name, amen. His steadfast love endures forever. Psalm 118. O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, His steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, His steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, His steadfast love endures forever. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like a fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. One thing that I will say about this psalm in terms of looking at it section by section is that as a songwriter, even though it has been translated and even maybe transliterated, the themes of the different sections very much stand out to me. In fact, verse 1 feels like a chorus of a song, so it's as if this psalm starts with a chorus, "'Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever.'" And maybe even the next several verses kind of just vamp on that chorus over and over. His steadfast love endures forever. And then verses 5 through 9, I see this like a verse of a song. It's all about how the Lord is on our side and we can take refuge in Him. And I have to wonder if after verse 9, did they go back to verse 1? Did they go back to the chorus? Oh, give thanks to the Lord for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Then verses 10 through 13, it feels like verse 2, and it's clearly about the stress of a great battle where they were surrounded by multiple enemies, but the psalmist boasts that in the name of the Lord, He cut off His enemies. I can't help but think of the song, It May Look Like I'm Surrounded, but I'm Surrounded by You. Then did they sing out that chorus again, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever." And then the next several verses feels like this huge bridge of a song that leads us back into an anthemic chorus. But this bridge, it's all about the Lord becoming our salvation. It's easy for us to think of Jesus as we read this, because part of this psalm was actually recited by the crowds—you probably recognized it—when Jesus entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. Verses 25 and 26 say that the people shouted, "'Hosanna!' or, "'Save us, we pray.'" And then, of course, "'Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord.'" And get this, in Matthew twenty-three thirty-nine, Jesus implies that this may be sung over him again at his second coming. He says this in lament over Jerusalem. He says, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Will we be singing that? One of the most beautiful aspects of Jewish culture, in my opinion, is the amount of scripture and songs that united them. As we know, Scripture is so much easier to memorize when it's sung, and I know that much of the Scripture that they were reciting was through singing songs and hymns. And I like to think this points out one of the major defining differences between even the early church and now. The Bible was the actual source of their songs. It's why we have 150 songs printed in the middle of Scripture, in the Psalms. This was a part of the earliest hymnal of the church. As my friend Matt Redman says, worship has already been described and prescribed for us in the Psalms. I've probably gotten on this soapbox before, but one of the things that I grieve, along with some of my fellow worship leaders, we grieve the fact that we no longer have a hymnal as the church. Just follow me for a second. I'm not actually saying that we wish that we would only sing hymns. It's more that we've lost the songs that unite us. Because we're not all singing the same songs anymore. And are the songs we are singing, are they grounded and steeped in Scripture? Did you know that every week about 45,000 songs are released on digital platforms? That's really hard, even for me, to get my head around. And I've been in music for over 25 years, or maybe that's actually why it's even harder for me to get my head around it. I mean, I know that it's biblical to sing a new song to the Lord, but I'm not sure that thousands of original, composed, and released songs is the answer to Psalm 33, sing to Him a new song. I'll actually come back to that in just a minute. But even in terms of mainstream music, There's actually now so many options that even as a world, we no longer even have those defining songs that united us as a culture like we did in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And we've, of course, seen the same thing play out in the church, even just over the last decade. Think about it. Even if we said that a tiny percent of those 45,000 songs released every Friday were worship songs, that's a lot of music out there to be ingested each week, isn't it? And then you think about all the different churches with all the different worship leaders who lean towards so many different styles. I mean, I'm curious. Think about the times that you've stood in church recently. I wonder if you've encountered more and more songs that you don't know or have never heard. I think about our church. We moved to a very small community church in Nashville about a year ago. And I do wanna publicly say that we love Church of the City and everyone there. In fact, our community group there is letting us stay connected. But our little family needs small right now. And when I say small, I mean that the service we go to on any given Sunday is about 40 to 50 people strong. So with that said, it's pretty telling who knows the songs and who doesn't. (laughs) And what I've observed is that for the most part, we either collectively recognize the song together as a congregation and we all sing out. And when we do the high ceilings of the little venue we meet in, it just starts to resound with the most beautiful harmonies. I also noticed that hands and countenances begin to lift towards the Lord on those songs that we just know deep within us. In fact, there was a Sunday recently when the words weren't actually working. They weren't projecting on the wall, but all three songs happened to be familiar. And I've never heard our little congregation sing that strong and sweet. There was just something so freeing and unifying about it. It also seems like there's songs that we collectively don't recognize together, and we all get a little bit quiet as we're searching for the rhythm and the melody together. And because it's so small, it's just going to be really telling if you don't get the melody right, if you know what I'm saying, but those times that it's a familiar song collectively, I love to think this is a modern hymn of the church. This is a song that unites us, whether it was written 10 years ago or 100 years ago. I think about great is that faithfulness. It is well, amazing grace, come thou fount. Even some of the more modern songs like 10,000 Reasons, How Great is Our God, and Christ Alone, The Goodness of God. Lord, I Need You, Holy Spirit, Waymaker. I'm only really naming a few here, but chances are if any one of those songs were sung at your church this Sunday, there's not many people who would be searching for the rhythm or the melody, right? At least not people who have been in the church for the last decade. They'd know these songs. I think there's a few things going on when a song is familiar, like the hug of someone you know and love. It's like home. Home. As someone who's been a part of the worship movement for more than a few decades now, I can say that there's most likely a reason that a song sticks. I mean, the first thing that's obvious to observe is that all of those songs I just mentioned were written in a time when we were consuming less music collectively as a world. So there's that. But now hear me out. This definitely isn't the case for every familiar song in the church, but I do believe that some songs are truly anointed, and I don't throw that word around. For whatever reason, I've seen what feels like God just resting on certain songs throughout the years. It's as if He chooses to just draw near. Some people say, like, God is just on that song. I don't know how to explain it. It's like there's this staying power of the Holy Spirit that acts like a needle and thread and actively knitting together and uniting the church year after year. Definitely in America, but I would venture to say that every song I just mentioned is known around the world. This doesn't mean that every anointed song is going to go around the world and be familiar to the church. And like I said before, it also doesn't mean that every popular worship song that arises and becomes well-known is anointed or has that Holy Spirit needle and thread through it. I could tell you this— We never imagined 25 years ago that worship music would become its own genre, and I can honestly tell you that it wasn't the goal, at least not for us or anyone we ran with. It was more that the church as a whole began to move beyond just singing songs about God to singing songs to God. It wasn't that the songs about God were not wanted anymore. I just think we knew in our hearts that there was more to the hymnal than just what was printed in the books within reach of our church pews. There was a new generation of worship leaders, and I believe that God poured out His Spirit during that time. I bore witness to it. I can testify that those beginnings were purer. And we deeply cared about our songs, having the richness of theology and the breath of the Holy Spirit, the Word and the Spirit coming together. I'm not trying to be that person that's over here saying, if you only knew what I knew. I actually just trust that God reveals the hearts of everything and everyone, even mine. So I come humbly before the Lord in this and before you. But I will say this, I've watched an authentic move of God turn into an industry where there is an enormous amount of money to be made. I imagine that you're thinking, well, Christy, aren't you right smack in the middle of all that? Not as much as you might think. In fact, I feel enough on the outside, both Nathan and I do, looking in sort of at this point in our lives, and maybe that's purposeful. That I'd be lying if I said we weren't concerned and honestly just at times heartbroken. Many of the leaders who have been around for 25 years or so, like us, it feels like there's just been this rise of like a call to shepherd and even protect and defend worship in the church. A call to pause and examine, a reset, if you will, as Jeremy Riddle has put it. The call to action seems to be to return to the heart of worship as well as the right mindset of worship, where there's a major shift in the weightiness of carrying right theology in our songs, where we move from singing songs about our own stories and our own need to coming fully back around the story of God, the heart of God, the heart of the Father, His holiness, His worthiness, His goodness, His mercy, and how He sent His only Son, Jesus, to meet our every need as we surrender our lives completely to Him. He's worthy of our all. By the way, if this topic interests you, and I promise this isn't a commercial, this is very heartfelt, I want to mention that my friend Matt Redman is partnering with Integrity Music, and they're providing a one-day seminar on worship and theology this fall. It's called Worth. It's going to be held on October 25th from 9.30 a.m. to 9.30 p.m. at the Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C., which is a beautiful experience all on its own. We've been as a family, and it's incredible. You can actually find out more about that on worthworship.com. That's W-O-R-T-H, worthworship.com. Again, I'm not getting paid to tell you about that. This is just me supporting a friend, whose voice I really trust in the church and in the worship community. And if you have a heart to learn about theology and worship, I think it would be an unforgettable experience. But as I begin to climb down off of my soapbox, I want to challenge you. Look into the songs you're singing. See if you can trace the theology of what you're singing back to Scripture. Does this song feel centered around you? Or do you find yourself with your eyes fixed on Jesus and what He has already done for you, how He is worthy of lordship of your life, of worthy of you surrendering your all? Wow, you know, to think that all of this stirred up in me just by reading Psalm 118, it's the truth. I said before, this psalm is actually the closing song of what is called the Hallel. Hallel literally means praise, and it's where we get the word hallelujah. And even the word hymn, actually, which is so fitting, it comes from the word hallel. The Hallel is a collection of six psalms. It's Psalm 113 through 118, and they have been sung and recited on joyous occasions and festivals all throughout Israel's history. In fact, it is sometimes known as the Egyptian Hallel, referring to the Exodus from Egypt that is sung about in Psalm 114. What I love to think about is that Jesus would have recited and sung these songs as a little boy. And then, of course, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, even Paul, the disciples and apostles, they would have learned these songs as little boys and were taught to sing them. I don't know why that just chokes me up. (laughs) The Hillel was a part of the hymnal that united them all throughout their lives as a people, as a people of God. Let's go to the Gospels for a moment where we'll find the significance of the Hallel and even this particular psalm to be so richly sweet. My brother Eric and his wife, Kristen, Amaryllis Kristen, of course, they wrote about this section of the Gospels so beautifully in their book called The First Breakfast, and it's one of my favorite things that I've actually ever heard Eric teach on, especially in a room full of worship leaders. We're going to go to Matthew 26, and the setting is the Last Supper. I'm sure that many of you have read through the tension of the timeline of Matthew 26, the plot to kill Jesus, Jesus then being anointed in Bethany by the woman with the alabaster flask. She poured out the very expensive ointment over his head, of which Jesus would say that this was to prepare him for burial. And he adds, Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. So, even right here on the Glorious and the Mundane podcast today, <laughs> her legend carries on. Isn't that beautiful? Her obedience is still being talked about. And then we see the stirring in Judas Iscariot to betray Jesus, to deliver him over to the chief priest. And then it moves into the Passover. And Jesus instructs his disciples to go into the city to see a certain man and to say to him, The teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. Scholars say that either Jesus had already made those arrangements beforehand or that it was just a miraculous work of God. Regardless, the disciples did as he said so that everything was prepared for the Passover that night. As they were all reclining around the table together that night, these men, as I said before, they were all once Jewish boys who sat around the tables with their parents and families their whole lives, sharing in deeply sacred traditions like the Seder, like the Passover meal. Yet what Jesus is about to do during this Last Supper is that He's going to give them fresh eyes and ears on something they very routinely partaken in their whole lives. There's very much an order to a Passover meal. In fact, the word Seder actually means set order, and the father of the home would have led this meal. And there are four ritual cups of wine that are used for the Passover meal, along with the hors d'oeuvres, the lamb, the unleavened bread, and a prayer is uttered over each ritual cup. Part of the Hillel is sung around the table. About in the middle of the meal, they would have sung Psalm 113 and 114. And then after the fourth cup is poured, the final Hallel songs would be sung, which is Psalm 115 through 118. But somewhere in the middle of the Passover that night, Jesus gave new significance to this meal that celebrates the deliverance of God's people out of Egypt. All throughout His relationship with the disciples leading up to this moment, He was very slowly but surely saying, I am your deliverer. In reading the gospel's It's easy to see that there were moments that the disciples were able to divinely grasp revelation, but as we know, there's other times that we just see their humanness, even in the garden that night when they fell asleep. And I think sometimes we're a little relieved, right, about how they just didn't always get it right away, at least not at first. That night, Jesus took the bread in his hands as the master of the table does, just like their own earthly fathers would have taken the bread in their hands at Passover their whole lives. This bread that is known as the bread of affliction, Jesus breaks it in that moment and he distributes it to them and says, take, eat. This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This would have been a departure from the prayers and singing and the liturgical type call and response of the Passover dinner that night. Jesus was speaking in afresh. And think about it, because of the disciples' account and the needle and thread of the Holy Spirit's breath and power, it's now embedded into the Holy Scriptures. Scholars believe that it was probably around the ritual of the third cup of the Passover that night, which is known as the cup of blessing or the cup of redemption, the one that corresponds with Exodus 6.6 that says, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. He says, drink of it. All of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. I wonder, this had to be the night of all nights for the disciples as they looked back when they were inspired to write about these accounts. I wonder if they sensed deep in their spirits that something was really different that night. Did they fully understand what Jesus meant as he broke the bread and passed the cup and said, do this in remembrance of me? There's a new covenant. It's me. I'm the Messiah who will be poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Was it dawning on them afresh who he really, really is? As the meal ended that night, they would have sung the last half of the Hallel together, which I mentioned before, Psalm 115-118. through 118. And I want to share with you what Eric and Kristen wrote about this in the first breakfast. It is noteworthy that for Jesus and Peter and the other disciples, singing these hymns would have been a part of their Passover experiences year after year their whole lives. The words of these hymns profoundly pointed to the Messiah— So it must have been especially poignant for Jesus and the disciples to sing them together that night, especially as Jesus knows what is to come. Interestingly, Peter and the disciples would have called Jesus either rabbi or by his given Hebrew name, Jesus, which is Yeshua. It is the name the angel gives in Matthew 121, which says, You shall call his name Jesus, Yeshua, for it is he who will save his people from their sin. It is not quite as obvious in English or even the Greek translation, but the name Jesus is the transliteration of the Hebrew term for, for the Lord is salvation. The word salvation appears in the Hillel, specifically in Psalm 116.13, Psalm 118.14, and Psalm 118.21. In the original Hebrew, the word for salvation, Yeshua, is used. Yeshua is literally defined as salvation. The incredibly poignant connection is that it's possible that when Jesus and the disciples sing the Hillel, they would have been singing Yeshua as the word for salvation. Yeshua is the Jewish way to say Jesus, and Yeshua is the way to salvation for all people. Isn't that stunning? I told you I'd come back to the charge in the Psalms to sing a new song to the Lord. I think the heart of this is not necessarily that you and I need to be writing new worship songs that will fill up the earth. The heart is, let authentic, fresh praise to the Lord spring up from your heart today. In fact, I wonder if the psalmist urge us to sing a new song to the Lord because they know that singing and worship can easily fall into something that we just do by rote. I think about the Jewish people. Their worship was so steeped in tradition, rich tradition, it may be something that could easily become so familiar and almost lost meaning. I wonder if this is why the psalmist would often encourage a new song. You probably heard somewhere along the way, and maybe even from me, I actually can't remember if we've ever studied this on the podcast, but all throughout the psalms, when you see the word praise, that could represent one of seven different Hebrew words And they all mean something different and distinct. One of those words for praise is, of course, hallel. It means to praise, but it can also mean to shine, to boast, to rave or celebrate. It can even mean to become clamorously foolish. I actually love that. But another word for praise is tahila, And it carries this idea of singing a new song to the Lord. And it's often used in the Psalms that talk about experiencing God's manifest presence, as in enter his courts with praise, like in Psalm 1104, where God is enthroned in the praises of his people, Psalm 22.3. 3. Those both use the word tahilah for praise. Overall, Tehila is the kind of praise to the Lord that is just flowing from your heart to his. And I have to wonder, y'all, the fact that it was even mentioned that the disciples and Jesus sang a hymn together after dinner. It makes me think that something transformational happened when they sang together that night. The disciples in the presence of Jesus. Enough for Matthew to add it into the Gospels. Something that had been routinely done since they were kids must have become very fresh and new and revelatory and deeply special. I wonder... After they opened with that chorus together, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. And then after they remembered once more the deliverance of God's people from Egypt, when they sang the verses about Him being their very refuge, about Him being on their side, after they sang of battles won and cutting off their enemies in the name of the Lord, did everything just land for them at once as they got to what I imagine could be The great bridge of this song. Verse 14 The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my Yeshua, my Jesus, my salvation. Verse 15 Glad songs of Yeshua, of salvation, are in the tents of the righteous. Verse 21 I thank you that you have answered me and have become my Yeshua, my Jesus. My salvation. This is just me, but I imagine there were tears welling up in their eyes that night, just like I have tears welling up in my eyes. They just went from singing songs about God to singing songs to God. Maybe this is the effect of the chosen on all of us, but <laughs> I can just see Jesus smiling at them tenderly as they sang, You have become my salvation, my Yeshua. Verse 22 and onward, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing and is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Yes, it was a festival day, but Jesus knew full well that he was about to be arrested. It was most certainly a day that the Lord had made and his time had come. The stone that the builders rejected is now the very cornerstone the stone that's going to hold up everything from now on. Eric and Kristen wrote this, As Jesus sings these words, he would literally begin his journey into the garden, willingly stepping into his great sacrifice on the cross, which would accomplish salvation once and for all. Yeshua would truly become the very nature of his name. You know what's so beautiful is that this can happen for us Every time we open our mouths and hearts to sing to the Lord, this kind of fresh, revelatory awareness that Jesus has become our salvation, when we understand being in His presence and also that the songs that we're singing are coming from and steeped in Scripture, how powerful It's powerful because we do see it in Scripture, and the weight of this should move us. It's part of our original hymnal as the church. But then like the disciples that night reclining around the Passover table, we also just are able to experience it in His very presence, the Word and the Spirit coming together. This is the meaning of John 4, that the true worshipers will arise who will worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. It's that personal just like the word salvation, being one and the same with Yeshua, with Jesus. I wonder if our as-for-me declaration for this last precious psalm of this summer series is that this beautiful Passover moment and this gospel that is still being told would become fresh and alive to us once more, just as we even just remember it, talk about it. That we can almost see Jesus smiling at us the way he must have been looking at his beloved disciples that night. As we echo back that ancient chorus, I will give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. He has become my Yeshua, my Jesus. Yes, Lord, our salvation, our Jesus, Your love endures all the way to 2023 and beyond. I'm going to let the music play out for a few minutes so that you can respond to Jesus for a few moments. You might even want to let a new song stir up in you, one that's just from you straight to Him that no one else needs to hear. I sure love you guys. I'll talk to you soon.